Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Jamie Goldberg. I'm here, as always, with Caitlin Murray. And there was no Thorns game this weekend, but I I think we have a lot to talk about coming out of this Timbers game. Yeah, I just want to let the listeners know... uh Different vibe for the podcast this week. We usually record at night is the morning. I just woke up. I have coffee. So this is going to be an adventure. We're going to see what a morning podcast feels like for us. Yeah, we were just talking about how our uh, working styles are different. I, I think I get my best work in the, done in the morning. I don't know if I get my best podcast work done in the morning. We'll see. Um, and I, I guess Kaylin's the opposite. <laughs> Yeah, I'm more of a night owl, but, you know, we got to get this podcast out. Labor Day sort of screwed up our schedules. I hope all the listeners had a great Labor Day weekend, but it sort of messed things up for us <laughs> a little bit. So we're trying to catch up and get this podcast out for you guys, because I know everyone is just waiting <laughs> to hear our take. So we got to we gotta power through this. <laughs> well, let's get right into it. Um, the game this weekend was Timbers versus Salt Lake. I think both of us thought the Timbers weren't going to get the result that they were able to get, although I don't know if we were totally wrong on the performance. Um, I, we both predicted draws. I predicted a 1-1 draw. You predicted a 2-2 draw under protest. I like, predicted that <laughs> Valeri scored, which was accurate. Uh, and, and you oh, thought, yeah, good job. <laughs> yeah. You thought the Timbers would cross the ball a lot. Uh, I think they actually crossed the ball fewer. That was, yeah, they only crossed the ball 10 times. Yeah. That was their lowest since June. <laughs> so I think in retrospect, I picked a really bad game for that side bet yeah. because if they were playing against more of a bunkering team, they definitely would have crossed the ball a bunch of times. And I still think that that, you know, you can tell when they're out of ideas. You can tell when they are against a bunkering team. They will just pump yeah. balls into the box nonstop. This was not that sort of game. I also think it was sort of... A game state game. We'll we'll get into it, but you score early, things change. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Timbers score early. They win one to nothing. Uh, they snap a two game losing streak. I think getting straight into it. I, I think you know this wasn't the most convincing performance from the Timbers. It, it was they showed grit. They got the win. They were dealing with a lot of absences. Uh, but I think this question for Mark sort of shows how how people were maybe feeling coming out of this game. So let's start with Mark's question. Mark asked, should we worry? Even with the win, I felt a lack of team play and synergy. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that after the game, you asked Jeremy Bobasi how the attack was clicking, and he said, 
you know, if he was being honest, it's been a little hot and cold. He also said that he didn't think the mentality of the team was quite to the level last year. And I think you left the scrum to grab another player. So I stuck with Jeremy Obosi and asked him more questions about that. And I asked him, you know, how, how do you fix that? If that's a problem, if the mentality isn't the same. He said he thinks the players need to communicate more during games, make sure they're on the same page. He's not the most vocal player, he said, and he needs to make sure he's more actively engaged in the game and talking to everyone. But I, I do think it is sort of a tough thing to diagnose because I think you and I agreed that the Timbers looked a little tired in their previous games just because of the, um, you know, the compact schedule and some of these players weren't getting rested that much. They had a full week of rest coming into this game. And for me, I don't think the energy level was what I expected. I thought it was interesting that Giovanni Savarese seemed to be happy with the energy level. That wasn't what I would have picked out from the game, but I don't know. It looked like when they got the first goal, they sort of took their foot off the gas a little bit. What did you see, Jamie? Yeah, I think uh, when you obviously, like you said, the game state matters. They were able to get the first goal. And I think that helped put them in a position where they could focus on just trying to grind out the win. But at home, this definitely wasn't the performance I expected from this team. Yes, they were dealing with injuries, but those injuries weren't in the attack. And you're right. When they got the goal, they kind of took their foot off the gas. Salt Lake controlled possession. Salt Lake outshot the Timbers. It wasn't the type of home game you'd expect from the Timbers when they're trying to dominate, when they're trying to get that second goal and put the game away. It, it, it really felt like that first goal happened. That was a great strike from Diego Larry. But after that, it, it just like, felt like they fell off. And so I thought that was a surprise. I think when you look at their passing, just in terms of the accuracy, especially in just the attacking half, uh, it was off. It, it wasn't what they want it to be. Uh, I think they it was in the 60, 60 to 70% um, area in, in terms of what the passing percentage was. Salt Lake, I think, had something like 76% in their attacking half. I, I just don't think the Timbers, the last three games, ha- have looked as good as we've seen them this season. And that is a concern for me right now because look, this is crunch time and the Timbers have a really big schedule in September. They're going to play five games in 15 days coming up soon. And they have to find a way to start making the most of these home games and playing with the type of energy and, um, you know, sort of cutthroat mentality that they need to at home. Yeah. I think they left the game open for real Salt Lake to equalize and, They're lucky that didn't happen, but it was not a dominant, super convincing performance in my view. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about the attack. Let's start there. Um, Like you said, I think the attack still looked a bit disjointed. I I didn't feel like this was a game that even though they found that first goal that you sort of can put the Atlanta game and the Seattle game behind behind them that this was sort of a turning point by any means. Um, so looking at the attack in terms of, I think one of the biggest things that keeps coming up is Fernandez and how much of an impact he's having on the game. He hasn't scored in three straight games now. Um, Senor Fern wants to know, is (laughs) Fernandez turning into the next Armenteros? Well, Senor Fern, first of all, great name. Uh, second of all, um, savage question. I mean, he didn't say what he meant by that, but I think we know what he means by saying 
is Brian Fernandez turning into Samuel Armenteros. Um, I think the difference, I, I don't think it's the same thing because I think the difference is that Samuel Armenteros was getting chances and the Timbers were playing well and getting results, but Armenteros specifically was running hot and cold. And I think we saw that earlier in the season when Fernando Adi was still around, Armenteros was being pushed and he was scoring some really stunning, amazing goals. And then at some point he just stopped doing that. And Jamie, you and I have talked about this in the past that we have sort of wondered if a lack of competition after Fernando Adi left caused Armenteros to sort of get complacent and go down a level. Because I do think that was specific to just Armenteros' form and the way he was playing. With Brian Fernandez, um, I mean, you talked about it with the Seattle game. He only had one shot the whole game. He had more shots against RSL, but they weren't great chances. And I mean, the most advanced stat that we have in soccer is expected goals. That tells you, based on the chances that a team has, how many goals should they score in a game? The Timbers expected goals against RSL was only 0.7. That was not a game that had a ton of great chances. So I think with Fernandez, the issue is more getting him service, getting him those scoring opportunities. And we've talked about this in the past. I won't go back into it, but I I still would like to see him sort of have a dedicated spot on the wing and see how that works and see if that gives him more of the scoring chances that he can do something with. Because I think we have seen that when there's a crowded box, like that's just not uh, the area where he's going to excel and score goals out of nowhere. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I think the chemistry and the attack just looks off right now. I I think Yes, you can always find a goal potentially from Diego Valeria or Sebastian Blanco taking a beautiful strike from outside the box, but you can't yeah. rely on that. The, the Timbers are good on the counterattack. They've shown that, but they also need to be good just in terms of finding each other when they have the ball in the attacking half and making smart passes, being able to read what other attackers are doing. And that's what they're not capable of doing right now it seems like especially when it comes to trying to find Fernandez I mean I think Mm -hmm. he is getting in good spots uh in some moments I I think and I think he's a much better player than Armenteros so for me that comparison I I I don't see it but I understand the reasoning uh, given that there has been sort of this drop-off but I think it, it is like you said it's not just on Fernandez I don't think other players right now Diego Valeri Sebastian Blanco um, even Jeremy Bobasi are, are finding Fernandez in the attack when he makes runs that he thinks is going to lead to just being able to create something. So the chemistry needs to yeah. be better. I, I don't know how you fix that except just training it and, and working specifically on it. But it hasn't been there like it like it has been in maybe some previous games. And I, I think that if they can start finding Fernandez again, he's going to score the goals. If he's getting the opportunities enough, good opportunities that can lead to goals, he's going to score them. I think that's what we've seen from Fernandez is he's a player when he has really good opportunities, he's going to put them away. He, he's not a player that's going to miss a, a shot right in front of goal, which we maybe saw at, at times with other forwards that the Timbers have had in the past. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think that, until they figure that out, there's going to be questions about the attack. I, I think going to your point about Fernandez playing wide, I don't want to belabor it, 
But I, I think that Perry... People are, yeah, we've gotten questions about yeah. it. It's, it's, it remains a discussion in Timbers land. So I, I think it's worth addressing. Yeah. I think you actually, you asked Giovanni Savarese about it, didn't you? Yeah, um, as Perry asked, um, for about 10 minutes in the second half, Fernandez and Abobasi switched. Uh, and why did they change back? And, and how did it look uh, when that happened? Uh, I think a lot of people pointed that out. It was pointed out in the broadcast. We noticed it in the press box. So I, I did ask Gio about that yesterday at training. And he essentially said that he was trying to put Fernandez on the wing because it was getting clogged up in the middle. And, and he was trying to get Fernandez more space. And he tried it briefly. And then they went back to what they had been doing. But his reasoning is essentially what we've been saying. Why not try him on the wing to get him more space? He's not getting as many opportunities in the middle. There's not enough space in the middle. But um, not to not to interrupt you, but didn't you also ask Giovanni Savarese last week? Yeah. And he, he basically said, people think they know what they're talking about, but MLS is not Liga Mekis. It's a yeah. different league, so it doesn't make sense. Like, he basically dismissed it automatically yeah. last week. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the reasoning last week is essentially, you know, it was it was different how Nicasa was playing in Liga MX and how Fernandez was the role he was asked to play there um, with the center forward maybe taking on almost more of a playmaker role with the wingers uh, not having as many defensive responsibilities, which really allowed Fernandez to play on the wing and focus only on being an attacking presence and scoring goals. And the Timbers do play differently. I mean, we we talked about it how if. Yeah. Fernandez went to the wing, Jorge Marrera couldn't necessarily come up as often because otherwise the Timbers would be left vulnerable uh, on the right side of the field defensively. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I get what Savarese was saying, but then, yeah, he was this week it, for a few minutes. He, for the exact reasons that I think people have been saying, he tried it out and it was very brief. I don't think we saw a huge difference and, and I'll, I'll let you tell me if you disagree but I don't think we necessarily saw enough of it to really know if it was going to work. But it's interesting that from last week to this week, Savarese did look at it and say, yeah, let's give this a try. Honestly, during the game, I, I definitely noticed that. But to me, it didn't look any different than the way the Timbers normally play, which is that, look, players have their positions on the field, but Giovanni Savarese has always been a coach that emphasizes a free-flowing attack. He wants players to find areas to get into, and it's not that unusual to see players maybe switch sides just for a few minutes or, you know, get into a part of the field that isn't there, and then the player that's normally in that position has to rotate out and kind of uh, fill the space that the other player vacated. I mean, that's just how the Timbers play. So to me, I, I guess you asked Sabarese about it, and he said that was a deliberate thing. When I was watching the game, I didn't think it was deliberate. I thought it was just, you know, a rotation that the Timbers were making like any other rotation. Um, so I agree that it was. it's kind of a small sample size. There's not really much to do with that. Um, I'd like to see them try it for a game. Jorge Marrero can stay back a little more. I think Jeremy Obobese, you know, talking about how in Nakacha and Liga Mekis, uh, their center forward was more of a playmaker. I think Jeremy Obobese is the perfect player for that. That seems to make a lot of sense. You do have to have Jorge Marrero stay back more. He can't 
get as high up the field because Brian Fernandez isn't defensive enough to kind of cover that. Um, but I, th- I think it makes sense to try for a game. I also think, you know, the Timbers could just change their formation, and that would be another way to sort of get players in their best spots and maybe get Fernandez a little more wide. And one thing that has been lingering in my mind that, like, I don't think we've talked about, I haven't really seen anyone talking about it, is I am sort of wondering where the Giovanni Savarese of last season is. Do you remember how they would play a different formation, like, every single game? I think we were through the first third of the season, they had already played like eight different formations or something. And this season, they've just been playing a 4-2-3-1. And I don't know if we know why that is. I mean, I think, you know, he was a new coach who's probably trying to figure out the best way to use the players that he had. But it's not like he didn't know that the team played a 4-2-3-1 under Caleb Porter. So like that formation was always there as an option. But he talked about wanting to be unpredictable and tailor what the team was doing to their opponents. So I just think it's interesting that now they can't deviate away from the sport two, three, one, and they can't, you know, maybe try four, four, two or something like that. Um, I thought that's been a little interesting because the Timbers have been so predictable this season in terms of the system that they're playing. Whereas last season, it was really just anyone's guess from game to game. So that's sort of a side issue but it's definitely something that's been lingering in the back of my mind yeah I think part of it is uh, trying to get Diego Valeri Sebastian Blanco and Brian Fernandez in positions where Savarese thinks they can be the most effective Um, I I think in a 4-4-2 which I would like to see at some point I think that would potentially put Fernandez in, in a position to maybe get a little bit more space playing um up front with a Bobasi and you could still play Valeri at the top of that diamond, but you kind of move Sebastian Blanco into a little bit more of a defensive position, and maybe that's not where you want him. So I think yeah. maybe those are questions. And when you're looking at that, I mean, in terms of which players you take off as well, that formation sort of changes things a little bit uh, from the central midfield perspective. Although, um, I mean, you would have Char at the bottom of the diamond and maybe... Paredes um, in that final spot or Andy Polo, if he ever gets back into the, the lineup, I, yeah. I think I, I think I can, I guess I, what I'm saying is I see the reasoning behind some of Giovanni Savarese's decisions this year, mm-hmm. but clearly they're not getting the most out of the attack right now. And so yeah. if you're not getting the most out of the attack, if this is a three games in a row at home, you're seeing, like you said, with the expected goals, you're seeing, that you're not creating enough good chances. You're not getting the players like Brian Fernandez in positions where they have opportunities to score. Something has to change. And maybe that's why Savarese for 10 minutes put uh, Fernandez on the wing. And maybe, even though he said that's not really something they're looking at, maybe we'll see that going forward. But I think doing the same thing over and over again isn't going to get them a different result. Yeah, and I just sort of threw that at you. I mean, we have sort of... um... You know, we have a rundown of questions that people are asking us. I just sort of threw that formation thing at you. And I'll be honest, you know, I I put that out there. I haven't thought in great detail about what I would want a 4-4-2 to look like. I just think we talked so much about how Obobese and Fernandez play so well off each other. So I guess my thinking sort of starts there. Put those two up top together together. 
that's sort of a good start. You do have to think about what the rest of that midfield's going to look like and how that would work. And um, I think you did a pretty good job of sort of breaking down what that could look like. But I haven't put a ton of thought into it. I just sort of threw it out there. But it'll be interesting to see going forward if maybe there is a change at some point. Because, like I said, this has just been so different compared to last season and the unpredictability. So uh, we'll see. It sounds it sounds like Giovanni Savarese doesn't really want to change things up, though. Yeah, uh, we will see. I think let's also talk a little bit about the defensive side of this game because I mm-hmm. do think – if you're give, we should give the Timbers a little bit of credit given they had seven absences, five <laughs> were defensive absences, uh, players on the back line. The Timbers didn't have a single defender on their bench, and yet they do get a, the clean sheet. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, in terms of the performance, I, I think, I mean, what did you think of the performance that the Timbers were able to put together on? on the defensive side in this game. I mean, you can't quibble, I guess, with a shutout. Uh, I I think we have to give some special attention to Claude Dielna here because uh, he has been hammered this season by the fans. We talked in a recent podcast about, um, you know, the fact that he wasn't that good. But for all the smack that has been talked about him, he did put in a solid performance against RSL and we have to give a little credit the goal that Diego Valeri scored started with Claude Dielna coming out heading a ball away into the midfield and sort of sparking uh, a counterattack there so I'm not on the Claude Dielna is good train (laughs) quite yet but he is essentially at this point their fourth choice center back And he put in a performance that allowed the Timbers to win. So I think from that standpoint, you have to be happy with that, I guess. Um, I do think they need to get some of their defenders back. You know, we'll talk about that. That's a whole other issue. But the thing with the Timbers defense is that, you know, I've talked about how I don't think they're that great this year. Last year, the Timbers defense was not exactly world beaters either. They were greater than the sum of their parts. And that's what they need to be if they are going to be successful. And I think in this game, you look across that back line. um, I don't know if it's it's the best back line in MLS, but as long as they're playing together and working as a unit, they can achieve results. They can put in the performances that the Timbers need. I think the issue, you know, something we've been talking about this whole time is consistency. And having one good game does not mean that they're going to have a good game next week. So uh, from that standpoint, they still need their best players available. But I think we had some questions about that. So I won't get ahead of myself. But (laughs) what did you think of the defensive performance? Yeah, I thought it was an overall solid performance. And I I think Dielna had... I didn't notice Dielna, you know, to the point where I was like, that was an incredible game, but I didn't notice him to the point where... But not where, noticing the yes, is usually pretty good. <laughs> that was what I was going to say. Yeah, it's it's not a bad thing to really not be thinking too much about a defender, meaning that they're just putting in a solid performance and doing what they need to do. And I think that's what the Timbers got out of Dielna. I think that's what they got overall out of their defense. I think there were two moments one really early in the game where there was sort of a scramble in the box and then in stoppage time when when Steve Clark came out and tried to punch the ball away mm-hmm. and Salt Lake almost scored that 
you yeah. want the defense to be a little bit better in those moments. The, those were unnecessarily scary moments. But <laughs> outside of that, I, I thought for the majority of the game, the defense was solid. I, I think Steve Clark continues to be a very important part uh, of this D- Timbers defensive unit. He made six saves in that game. He made a save on the free kick uh, in stoppage time that uh, secured the shutout for the Timbers. He's, I believe leading the league right now in save percentage and uh, goals against average for goalkeepers that have played earned at least 15 starts this year. So uh, goalkeepers that are actually starting. So he continues. Yeah, (laughs) he's been very good for the Timbers. I I think he had to come up big in that game, but I thought overall the back line was solid. So and thank goodness Steve Clark has been good because, yeah. again, going back to injuries, <laughs> it's not like they have anyone else. So. I know, yes, with <laughs> Jeff Anella out for the season. Um, yeah, it, I, I think overall, especially given how much worry worries we had coming into the game around the defense, I, I was pretty happy with that performance. I think going forward, there are still a lot of question marks. <laughs> uh, we got a lot of questions about that. Um, Bobby asked, are any of the injured Timbers players going to return this week? And the answer is no. (laughs) Um, The Timbers aren't getting any players back from injury. And on top of that, uh, Renzo Zambrano and uh, Andres Flores and Christian Paredes have all been called up and will miss this game uh, due to international duty. In terms of Renzo Zambrano, I'm still sort of waiting to hear what the MLS disciplinary committee does because he Oh, you think he might not keep that red card or no you think they I might think add a game? <laughs> I think the opposite he touched okay. a ref so um yeah I, Just I, a side, yeah. side note stupid red card yes. you cannot do that like he's a young player his inexperience absolutely showed in that moment I think it was reactionary more than anything but you can never yeah. put your hands on a referee and it's not like it was a violent shove or something but he definitely got up in the referee's yeah. face and was sort of intimidated the ref. And we don't know what he said, but I'm sure we would need the bleep button <laughs> if uh, if we yeah. knew what he said. So very, very unprofessional red card in that situation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I'm not sure if because he touched a ref, I, I, that's just any time that happens. I, I think the disciplinary committee is always going to look at it for a potential second game suspension. And mm-hmm. on top of that, I, I, I want to clarify this to make sure, but in terms of him going to international duty, that means he might have to wait a week to serve that red card suspension. Yeah, I, that's going to push yeah. his unavailability back even so, more. So, yeah. So we have, I'll, I'll have to get more info on how long Zimbrano is going to be out, but just looking ahead to Kansas City, he's out for this weekend. With him out, Andres Flores out, and Christian Predis out, along with all the defenders out. The Timbers are essentially... <laughs> Who are they going to play? <laughs> yeah. The, the Timbers will not have uh, any true defensive midfielders or defenders on the bench, I, I think. I think it's <laughs> likely that Eric Williamson's going to come into the lineup. He, he's the last true central midfielder that they have. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess technically, Sarvesi could try Andy Yeah, Polo. I didn't think about this. Do we know how many minutes he's even played this season? Oh, very, 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 it's it's been it's been some, but it's been very okay. few. He's come in into a few games. Eric Williamson has not played a ton of minutes. He may be in this game starting. He, like I said, Andy Polo, I think would be the only other option, but he hasn't played in a while, and he's not a true defensive player at all. No. <laughs> so 
<laughs> yeah, I, I mean the Timbers did play uh, Andy Polo. I think in when they had were playing the four three two one, they play him in more of that defensive role last year. But yeah, he hasn't been getting playing time. I'm not really sure where he's at on the depth chart anymore uh looking up eric williamson it looks like he has had one start this season so i, I vaguely remember that and was right you're getting a lot, a lot of questions where i'm having to remember specific dates when oh it, my god when the... and i'm not a morning person so we should just move on yeah. i can't remember this either way right now. point being the timbers are going to be yeah there's there's going to be some issues this weekend in terms of uh who's going to play we can talk a little bit more about what we think is going to happen with the Spring Kansas City game before just before we hit that I do want to bring up at least yes there is one other thing that happened yeah. in this game or didn't happen um the Timbers army <laughs> did not protest at least in terms of actually staying silent they did not stay silent this game um protesting MLS's ban on political signage at on in the 33rd minute a number of iron front flags did go up in the north end so um, maybe uh, form a protest, just not as um, active for the first 33 minutes in terms of that silence. Uh, from, from what we saw on Twitter, what the Timbers Army released, it sounds like they are in conversations with MLS and the Timbers. So mm-hmm. I don't think this is over. I, I think we're going to see where it goes from here. I, I guess for you, um, seeing the, seeing the I guess, the non-protest or the minimal protest with the Iron Flags this weekend, seeing the Timbers Army tweets, seeing what, what came out of, obviously, the silence at the Seattle game. I, I mean, where do you see this going? Do you, do you expect this to lead to change at this point? Well, I, they did sort of protest. I yeah. mean, the Iron Front flag is ostensibly still banned. Yeah. Like, that's supposedly <laughs> the case. But at the 33rd minute, again, they busted a bunch of those Iron Front flags out and flew them high. Um I have to be honest. I mean, now we have two full weekends of MLS games since the Timbers Army sort of launched uh, the protest of staying silent. And what's noticeable is that no one else has taken up this cause. It has just been the Timbers Army. And I think it's the silent protests. The Timbers Army are the only ones that have done it. I think in terms of just waving a ton of Iron Front flags, even though they're banned, Again, the Timbers Army is the only one that is doing that. So I think that if other supporters groups around the league were engaging in similar protests, I think that would put more pressure on the league. But since that's not the case, and you know, I've spoken to other reporters and people who kind of are familiar with MLS and, you know, in my off-the-record conversations. I think the sense is that this is really just sort of an issue here in Portland and in the Pacific Northwest. It's not really that big of an issue nationally. And I think MLS probably thinks they can just ride this out and it's going to fizzle out. It's going to go away. It's going to be brushed aside. So I don't know if this is going to have a actual resolution. I think that what the Timbers Army is asking for, you know, the word political to be removed from the fan code of conduct. I don't think that is going to happen. I see, frankly, no chance that that happens. I don't think the fan code of conduct is changing. I think with the iron front flags, um, I think at this point, they are just going to ignore the issue and kind of hope it eventually goes away. Uh, Because again, you know, the fans were flying the iron front flags. As far as we know, well, I'll speak for myself. As far as I know, 
I'm sure you've heard the same thing. No one was ejected from the game. No one's flags were taken away. So I think they're just sort of letting this happen. They're riding it out. They think it's just going to kind of go away on its own. So I think that the Iron Front symbol will remain banned officially. I think just for the sake of letting this fizzle out, go away, and blow over, they're just not going to enforce it right now. That is my guess. This is not official communication from MLS or the Timbers or anything like that. I I haven't talked to anyone um, from MLS about this since that article I wrote for Yahoo Sports. So I'm just sort of guessing, but I do get the sense from people that MLS probably views this as something they can just ride out and that is confined to just this part of the league. So they don't need to worry about it is my sense. What do you think? I think that there is definitely support um, for what the Timbers army is doing throughout the league. And I, I think you see that especially on Twitter with sort of the hashtag and United front, you see other fan bases bringing signage uh, around the iron front to games. You see things like that. So in that sense, I think it is league wide. But I think the point you make that you haven't seen another fan base do a silent protest. You haven't seen another fan base do a protest in which you can see just by turning on the TV that a protest is happening. And I think that's what's missing. I I think when it comes to bringing signs, when it comes to tweeting about signs being uh, taken away by security or fans getting sent uh, sent out of the stadium... I think that's all in good and that maybe adds to the cause, but I do agree that that's something that MLS can sort of sweep under the rug a little bit. I I think when it comes to something like a silent protest and and it actively changing uh, the sound of the game, the atmosphere that MLS is trying to go for on a national TV broadcast, that's when the league has to pay attention. And clearly that made an impact when the Timbers Army did that here. But I I do agree that if you're not seeing protests like that throughout the league, if you're not seeing the Timbers Army continue these protests, if MLS feels like they can just continue to ignore it without seeing a noticeable difference to essentially their bottom line, then yeah, maybe it's going to stay the same. I I, I do think that there's a chance that what happens is that the Iron Front flag becomes, um, they, they start allowing the Iron Front flag, but you're right. They have sort of a problem now uh, of their own making where if they cha- take the word political out, then you're going to get people on every side bringing in signage. Suddenly you're going to have potentially yeah. Trump 2020 hats and, and signage in games as well. And MLS does not want that. They don't want big campaign slogans in games. And if they allow the iron front flag, then you are potentially going to have right wing uh, activists coming out and pushing back against that um, mm-hmm. with their own type of signage. And, and so MLS has put themselves in a really tough spot by deciding to take this one symbol, the Iron Front, and, and ban it and make this sort of situation where they're almost saying both sides, we want everyone to feel comfortable, all sides. And obviously the the feeling is, well, there's, there, there's not really two sides when it comes to anti-fascism and fascism. Um, there, there's well, one side. I guess there. technically there is. Yeah, one but side I mean, no one supports that or shouldn't. Yes, support, so. exactly. But but the point is by sort of creating that to begin with, they're sort of in a bind where getting out of it now uh, could lead to protests from um, you know people on a more right wing yeah. side as well. Yeah, and, they, and, they can't undo the yeah. political so. uh, word. I mean, 
what they should have done. I mean, the best solution is invent a time machine, <laughs> yeah. hop in it, go back to the beginning of the season. And I do think they could have changed the code of conduct and added the word political. They shouldn't have made a big deal about the Iron Front and met with you know, the Timbers army before the season and talked about it. I think if they had just changed that word and sort of let everything else sort of fly under the radar, none of this would be an issue. Because when did we see a Trump 2020 flag in the stadium? It was after the Iron Front issue had been publicized publicly. So, you know, right wing trolls knew that this was a thing that existed. When did the Seattle Sounders supporters start getting um, provoked by white supremacists. It was after the Iron Front symbol had become public knowledge. If, you know, right-wing agitators didn't know that the values of supporters groups and MLS tends to be progressive, they wouldn't have known, they wouldn't have bothered uh, trying to provoke these people. It's it's because it became an issue that was public and people knew about and yeah so short of inventing a time machine which unfortunately i don't think is going to happen this season uh yeah they're going to have to figure out how to proceed from here and i just want to say i don't think it's not that other supporters groups around the league um i don't think it's that they don't care i think people around the league do care but in terms of standing up and being willing to risk whatever sort of consequences that may come from a protest, from bringing a ton of Iron Front flags into a stadium, silently protesting, those sorts of things. We have not seen people being willing to step up around the rest of the league. Tweeting a hashtag or tweeting, you know, a pin you have on your shirt or whatever it is, is a very uh, low level of activism. You know, as someone who uses Twitter a lot, it tends to be an echo chamber. So I followed a United Front hashtag. It remains very active, but if everything that they're doing is confined to a hashtag, MLS can easily ignore that, is all I would say. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And we'll see how the protests continue um, if this dialogue with MLS doesn't go anywhere and what the Timbers Army, what steps they take. Um, Because, yeah, I, I think the continuation of protests is the only thing that's going to potentially push MLS to make a change. And they haven't made it yet, even after the silent protests. So we will see. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about Kansas City. I think we already hit sort of the main, one of the main points going into this game, but the Timbers play Kansas City Saturday, 7.30 p.m. Kansas City has struggled a lot this season, but they've won the last three games. They're only three points behind the Timbers in the standings. So they would uh, catch Portland with a win here at Providence Park. Um, In terms of international duty, we touched on it for the Timbers. Kansas City will be missing some significant players as well. Most notably, uh, they'll be missing Gutierrez. They'll be missing Russell. So that could definitely affect um, their attack and how they're able to perform in Portland. I guess for for you, um, the biggest question, I think, is how are the absences on both sides, you think, going to impact this game? I mean take a bunch of starters out of lineup or take a bunch of bench options. Like it, it's going to change the game. I think it's obvious how it'll change the game. It just gives you less options in the interest of time. Cause we're running a little long. I'll let you give your take. Cause honestly, I don't really have a ton of thoughts. I haven't really, I'm going to be honest, 
did not really look at the rosters that closely, and you clearly have because you were rattling off those absences. So <laughs> maybe you would be uh, better to speak on that. I think that the Timbers are actually in a way in, in a better situation in terms of absences than Kansas City. I think that if the Timbers have one injury or, or one player that can't go uh, comes up um, just feeling a little tight hamstring or something like that, knock on wood, that they are suddenly in a in a really, really bad situation um, because they just, in terms of bench option, options, are going to have pretty much nothing in, in terms of def- defense or defensive midfield. Um, but I think when you look at the potential starting lineup that you're going to see from the Timbers, overall, I, I think it's going to be mostly starters. I, I mean, I think Elna and Williamson are the two players that are coming in and having to step into this game. But otherwise, you essentially have a regular starting lineup for the Timbers. Uh, in, in obviously, they're missing some big players, but the attack is intact. Bill Tuiloma has started, even though obviously you'd want Mabiala in there. Diego Char is still going to be in defensive midfield. So I think overall we're going to see an okay lineup from the Timbers, whereas Kansas City is essentially losing their two best attacking players. So the Timbers, despite the absences, I don't think for them this is going to be able to use that as an excuse for this game. It's a lot of absences, but Kansas City uh, maybe is dealing with worse absences just because they are losing two star players that they really have relied on. So I don't know how this is going to play out. I think it's going to be tough for both sides, but... The Timbers still have a strong enough lineup at home that the expectations should be that they can get the job done. And if they don't, I mean, I think there'll be a lot of questions coming out of this game. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. But why don't we move into the hot take segment now? Um, Jamie, I think you should go first. I think yours might be Timbers related. So you can kind of wrap us up on Timbers talk. Yeah, I think that, and this is probably not the hottest of hot takes, but I think this is more going back and saying, you know, maybe everything we've been saying throughout the year, maybe us journalists, fans, everyone around the team. Speak for yourself, Jamie. I'll speak for myself. (laughs) Maybe I personally, and, you know, I've seen other articles out there. um, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Should have been more concerned with the Timbers late season schedule. I, I, I feel like throughout the year we've been talking about, oh, the Timbers have 12 games on the road to start the season. And as long as they can survive that, they're going to be good to go. Their, their second half schedule will be great. They'll be at home. They'll pick up a lot of wins. And I don't think that was fully taking into account what this second half schedule looked like. Um, the Timbers had five games in 15 days uh, last month, and they're about to have five games in 15 days again. So even though that they're at home, these, this schedule is not easy. It's not a guaranteed win. Yes, being at home makes a difference, but you saw coming into that Atlanta game, fifth game in 15 days. Obviously, they've had more rest over the last two weeks, and it hasn't got all that much better. But you could see fatigue there. And I, I think that this team has looked fatigued pretty much since they had to deal with that five-game and 15-day stretch last month. And they are going to try to turn it around in the next two weeks, pick up results against Kansas City, D.C. United. But then they're going to be right back into a five-game and 15-day stretch. And if they don't manage that stretch well, they will not be in the playoffs, period. I, I mean, that's where this team's at right now. So... Yeah. Obviously, home games, the expectation is a win. But I think when we were looking at the season, when we were looking at the schedule, we should have probably taken note uh, of the how compact some of these um, stretches were going to be and how it wasn't just going to be gimme games uh, at the end of the season here. 
Yeah, I mean, I will go back to the... Is it a stat? I don't know what technically qualifies as a stat, but every team that has had stadium construction and has had to play a bunch of games on the road and then come home to finish out their season has made playoffs. So from that standpoint, I think that there was definitely reason to believe that the Timbers were going to be fine. I think there may be a couple notable things. I think that 12 games on the road was the longest of those sort of stadium construction stretches that we've seen in MLS. So I guess from that standpoint, it was a little different, but then you would think that the advantage on the back end of the season would be even stronger. There's also a different um, playoff format, and that has impacted the schedule a little bit. Um, I'm not sure I should have checked. I I actually didn't know what your hot take was. Um, I don't know if because of the new schedule that the season has, if that has caused more of these um you know, compacted schedules or maybe how that has affected it. Or maybe it's maybe there's just as many midweek games as it, years past. It, it's a few more because the, okay. they shorten. I mean, the season used to end at the end of October and now it ends at the beginning of October. Right. So they could make more room for playoffs. OK, yeah. so, yeah. So my thinking was correct. I wasn't sure if I was making that up or if that was true or not. So I guess from that standpoint, that is one difference that we're seeing uh, where there are more of these games than in years past. But... I don't know. I still think that the points are there for the Timbers. I think if they don't make playoffs, it's just because they're not a good team. (laughs) And we have to accept at that point that they haven't been a good team. They've been very up and down. I think making the playoffs is totally in their control right now. They just need to perform better. I mean, part of it is just not great performances if we're if we're being honest so yeah and I don't want to use this as an excuse I just think that it was tougher than we recognized but yeah, yeah I think it's still a massive disappointment coming out of those 12 games where they actually finished on a pretty good note to to not make playoffs so I yeah, think, I mean, I, I think we did take for granted yeah. that they would just be winning these games at home that they had back to back and that yep. has clearly not been the case Kaylin, what is your hot take? Okay, so my hot take um, is based on an article you wrote, actually. So, uh, Jamie, you wrote an article on Tuesday about U.S. soccer potentially no longer running the NWSL going forward. And for listeners who did not read that article, you should. And you should just support Jamie's work at the (laughs) Oregonian in general anyway. Uh, But this is something for the listeners that don't know, this is something that's quietly been sort of in discussions for a long time, I think maybe longer than people knew. I mean, it was something I talked about in my book, which at this point, I wrote that like a year ago, over a year ago, and it's still something that's in discussions. And in your article, you sort of got the latest update. It's still in discussions. Nothing has been decided yet, but... It's still in flux, and you you know you talk about some of the factors that were going to be in play, but U.S. Soccer has a management agreement to run the NWSL, and that expires at the end of this year. And that doesn't automatically mean that U.S. Soccer is going to pull out of running the NWSL. In years past, that management agreement has expired, and it's just been renewed, and U.S. Soccer has continued to run the league, but. 
there is discussions that maybe that's not going to happen this time around. And this isn't a super hot take, but I guess I would what I want to say is I think the NWSL needs to think very carefully about trying to operate on its own without U.S. soccer's help. Because, I mean, from my reporting that I've done, and I think maybe you found similar things when you were working on your article, there's been frustration in the NWSL with U.S. soccer having the final say in everything. And U.S. soccer, you know, there's been commissioners of the NWSL in the past. They currently don't have one right now. And people always talk about how there's no commissioner. U.S. soccer has always been the commissioner. It doesn't matter who holds the title of commissioner. U.S. soccer has always had the final say in things. And I think that's really frustrated some of the owners in the NWSL. You know, off-the-record conversations I've had with owners, they don't like that U.S. soccer pulls national team players away for um, games outside of FIFA dates, and it disrupts the NWSL. Fans complain about it constantly. They hate that. But I think there is a trade-off to be made. And, you know, sometimes I think NWSL fans in these sorts of issues tend to miss the forest for the trees a little bit because... The U.S. Women's National Team winning the World Cup is probably the best boost that the NWSL could ask for. And if U.S. soccer thinks that pulling national team players out of the NWSL will help them win the World Cup, I mean, isn't that worth it? U.S. soccer has also put $18 million into the league. I think a lot of that was probably the players' salaries for the allocated national team players, but it's also operational costs. It's also front office support. The NWSL has not had a director of communications for a while now, and I have had to go through U.S. soccer to get help on certain NWSL issues. So is U.S. soccer's involvement worth some of the inherent power struggles that happen when the Federation runs the league? I mean, I think there are trade-offs to be made, and if U.S. soccer stopped being involved in the NWSL entirely, that would make me really worried for the NWSL, to be perfectly honest. I don't see it as a positive scenario to have U.S. soccer walk away from this. So we don't know what's going to happen. It sounds like it remains very in flux. I think everyone is trying to figure out a way to move forward and what it looks like if the league takes more control and ownership over itself. But I would just caution everyone to think long and hard about what it means to not have U.S. soccer involved. And I think, you know, for fans who have been angry about national team players being pulled out of NWSL games, I would just say, be careful what you wish for. So that's my take. A little ominous, but I think it's worth saying. (laughs) I think that... It sounds like the hope is that there's going to that the NWSL moving to next season will take a little bit. will have a little bit more autonomy. That seems to be where the talks are right now. But I agree. I think if U.S. soccer just completely pulls out and, and says, OK, NWSL, figure this out yourself. I think the league will fold. I don't think it'll yeah. exist anymore. I think they need U.S. But soccer. The irony is, I think that the, the league kind of wants that, right? Like. People want to have full autonomy. I think they want to move in that direction. It might not happen overnight, but that's their goal. And I'm worried about them trying to achieve that too quickly, I guess. Yeah, I I think that is the goal. I think that 
right now they need the financial support from U.S. Soccer. And I think, I mean, talking to Merrick Paulson, I think at least some owners recognize that. Um, I mean, we'll see if U.S. Soccer is okay with NWSL essentially having it both ways. Uh, here's yeah. your autonomy and here's our money. I mean, it's essentially <laughs> kind of what the, I, I think the ideal situation for um, some owner owners that maybe want more autonomy right now is. But there, yeah, there has to be some middle ground because... I don't think this league is sustainable without U.S. soccer right now. I don't think the owners can afford to pay the salaries for the U.S. women's national team players. I don't think that the front office right now is set up to to be able to handle a world where U.S. soccer isn't lending support. I, I mean, yeah. we've dealt, like you said, with the communications folks from U.S. soccer for NWSL things throughout this year. And... Right now, I, I mean, I don't know if people fully realize this, but sometimes when NWSL, when, when media um, that cover the NWSL don't really have answers to, to certain questions right now, um, maybe how this deal is going to look, this and that, it's because it's really hard to talk to anyone from the league right now. The communication yes. situation there is unlike any professional league I've dealt with um, at, at any it's point. It's really bad. It, and I would yeah. also say people might not realize that sometimes as a reporter, if you can't get answers to something and you're just getting stonewalled, yeah. sometimes you just move on to other stories that you're working on that are more important that you can actually get some information on. And I know fans would probably say, well, you should try to write the story anyway, even if the NWSL can't help you. And like, when we have a million other things to cover, like, that's just not how it works. And like, sometimes it's just really hard trying to do pretty basic things like trying to get stats or injury reports. And that just, it just makes it harder to cover a league. Like, that's why communications departments exist everywhere, because they need to help facilitate the coverage of their leagues or their teams or whatever it is. And when you don't have a communications department, essentially, that makes it really difficult to cover it. Yeah. So the NWSL, yeah, I think has a lot of work to do both. I mean, I financially, I think they need U.S. soccer. And if U.S. soccer is walking away from everything outside of the financial support of essentially salaries and things like that, I still think the front office needs a complete overhaul for it to be functional because I I don't think they (laughs) are in a position right now to stand alone, even from a front office perspective. So there's a lot of questions there going forward. It's in in your article, you reported what they have 10 or 15 people in the front office. Is that right? That's what Amanda Duffy said. That includes, I have such a hard time even (laughs) understanding what roles these people are. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it includes NWSL media, which was a venture with a and E, which, um, continues this year after the partnership ended. I think some of that staff has left knowing that their jobs are sort of in flux going into next year. And that's probably going to disappear next year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's those staff are going to be folded into Chicago, which means how many staff are actually going to be folded in Chicago. I mean, maybe people don't want to move from New York to Chicago. And notably, the reason it's in Chicago is because that's where U.S. Soccer House is. That's where the NWSL headquarters are. So, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot. And I I hope other people will continue reporting on this. And I'm going to hopefully continue reporting on this because I I think this is probably the most interesting issue facing the NWSL right now. 
Yes, absolutely. All right, let's hit a little bit of Thorns. We kind of talked about other things partially because we don't have any game to review for the Thorns. The Thorns were off off. last week because of the international break. Most players aren't even in town yet. It sounds like they'll be coming back. Um, There was a few players that were back yesterday at training. I I think the U.S. players will be flying back today. All the players are supposed to be able to meet the team in Portland before they fly to Utah tomorrow, so they'll get... one training session together before the game in Utah uh, on Friday at 6.30 p.m. Thorns played Utah to a 2-2 draw on the road in July. Um, What do you think? What do you think they need to do to get a better result this time around? Well, I mean, we talked about this before, that the NWSL season sort of needs to be broken up in these different parts just because of the World Cup. And I think we saw in the summer that until national team players got back from the World Cup, that's not really representative of what we're seeing now. Like, what we saw in the summer is not the same as what we're seeing now. I mean, um, when they played against uh, Utah in that 2-2 draw, that was sort of a weird game. It was the first game back for uh, the U.S. internationals, and I think that was always going to be the sort of game where the team was reintegrating players and kind of figuring out what it was like to play together again for the first time in months at that point. So it's hard to look at that game against Utah, the 2-2 draw that they had in July, and try to take anything from it now. Uh, I I do think that Utah is sort of a tough place to play. Um, I think, you know, Utah is the only place in the NWSL at altitude and I think that can tire out teams a little more quickly and you know even if it is a small difference even if it's just two percent or whatever it is these are the sort of margins that decide games so I think going into Utah and being able to finish strong and sort of stay uh, stay mentally present stay physically able through the final whistle is going to be important because I didn't write this down. If I recall that two, two draw, wasn't there a late goal from Utah? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. So I think that'll be a factor. Yeah. I think that the thorns are in a much better situation than they were then for, for the reasons you mentioned. I mean, the, these players have been back. The thorns have been playing well. I think if they play as well as they played against Washington and Chicago, they can get a win here. I also think Utah is a really good team. I I think we're seeing that now that they could legitimately be in the playoffs this year. They are in fourth place right now. They have Amy Rodriguez. They have Christian Press. They have uh, Becky Sauerbrunn. They have Kelly O'Hara. They, I think, have conceded the fewest goals in the NWSL this year. And you add two of the best attackers in the league to that. And you're looking at a really good team. But... I think if the Thorns can play how they've been playing, I am confident that they can go into Utah and get a win. But yeah, it's not going to be an easy game. It's a tough place to play. I think the other element is that they are, both teams are going to have players coming back from international duty. The the Thorns will have more players coming back from international duty Um, this week. They're only going to have that one training session. I don't know if that's going to impact the performance at all. Um, I, I think that, Like you said, the season has been broken up into parts and and the Thorns haven't really had this situation where they can just have players in, 
train and not worry about players going in and out. They are at least in a situation now where they're not having national team players miss games. But do you think that having the players sort of come out for the for international break, come back in late this week is going to make any impact in the performance on Friday? Well, I don't think from, I mean, the issue in July, I think, was maybe more of a team chemistry issue where the players had just gotten back. They hadn't been training together. The Thorns sort of developed this identity of being a team without the national team players. And then suddenly the national team players were back. This is a different situation. It's not as if the national team players missed any games. There was an international break. The NWSL actually... uh, U.S. soccer and the NWSL did not overlap because international breaks were followed. So the national team players haven't missed any Thorns games. I think it's just, you know, how much does the travel and dealing with international duty affect the Thorns players? Because Lindsey Horan, Tobin Heath, I mean, these are players that got significant minutes for the national team uh, during uh, this victory tour stop or two stops, actually. So I think that's the question. I don't really anticipate it being a huge factor, though, because it's not as if they haven't had a ton of time with the team and they're not on the same page with the team, which was the case in July. So I don't know if it's going to be a factor, but maybe you have different thoughts. No, I I think I mostly agree with that. I I think the travel is probably the one question mark. These players are going to come back in and then have to immediately travel. I think it's a little bit easier to come back in and play a home game. But it does feel like the Thorns are sort of hitting their stride, and we'll see if they can continue that. This team at the end of seasons generally plays their best soccer, and it feels like the national team players are back, the chemistry is back, they have an idea of what their formation, their style of play, their lineup looks like. And I think that's what we saw in the last two games, uh, Washington and Chicago was a team that was hitting its stride. So if they can keep building off that, I mean, I'd have to look up the specific uh, win and loss totals from the last few years. But you look at the Thorns record in the final stretch of the seasons under Mark Parsons, and this team picks up a lot of wins. So. I don't know. I, yeah, think I remember writing something about that yeah. last year, and I did the math or something, and the amount of points they tend to pick up toward the end of a season is much higher than yeah. the beginning of the season. So, yeah, this is definitely the point where we should expect that the Thorns are going to kind of start to accumulate points. So let's hit just a couple listener questions before predictions. Emma wants to know any more information or updates on potential NWSL expansion for 2020. I will say that Merritt Paulson said in a forum that uh, within the next two years, there were three teams that he thought would could potentially be coming into the league. Mm-hmm. Um, he made it clear. I mean, when I talked to him, you know, nothing's finalized. Um, but do you, do you have any more information to add on that? No, I think uh, the end part of your response there is really important because... Uh, so Merritt at this uh, season ticket holder event said that the league is looking at two teams for next year and then another team for 2021. And I will say that, you know, in my conversations with, you know, quote unquote sources and uh, people who know about expansion in the NWSL, I have been hearing that, you know, the league was on the precipice of bringing in new teams for like years now. Like it's, it's always a conversation. And the fact that it's not final 
that these teams are not set to be in the league next year, I think is an important thing to note. Because when Merritt said that at the event, I think a lot of people thought that meant, oh, we got two new expansion teams, it's happening. And I would caution everyone that like, expansion conversations have been happening for a while. They've felt close for a while and nothing has happened. And I also think, I mean, another point of this is everyone talks so much about expansion, but I think actually what the league needs to do is look at replacing franchises instead of expanding. I mean, look around the league, look at how disparate the different, you know, training environments and game day environments, look at how different everything is. And I don't think it really reflects well on the NWSL to have these haves and have nots. I think instead of expansion, I do think they need to look at replacing teams. That's essentially what happened with FC Kansas City. That team was moved uh, to Utah. That happened with the Western New York Flash. They were moved to North Carolina. I'm just going to put it out there. I think Sky Blue is a prime candidate for a team that ought to be moved. So, you know, there's so much talk about expansion, but I would say that maybe that's not what the discussion should be. And I think that there are people at the NWSL who are aware of that and who are pushing for not expansion, but relocation of franchises. So um, I think people are really anxious to get some expansion news. They desperately want to believe something's happening. I thought it was interesting Merritt said that, but I think it might be a little soon to say, but we'll see. Well, uh, I think something else that fans would be anxious to hear about if it happened. Um, Wendy wants to know, do you think there will be a big Thorns international signing within the next year? Well, we sort of talked about this, I want to say like three podcasts ago, because you and I had both been hearing that the Thorns were going to make a big international signing that obviously did not happen. And it doesn't look like it's going to happen this season. But I think that... The Thorns are scouting. Mark Parsons talked about scouting players at the World Cup. I think the Thorns always want to make a splash and bring in a big marquee signing. So even though I don't see it happening for the season, if we're talking about this year, I think it's possible maybe in the offseason they acquire someone for next year. But I have not heard anything specific. I have not, you know, gotten any information from sources. I have not asked Mark Parsons. So it's been a little quiet on that front. Have you heard anything, Jamie? I haven't heard anything, but I guess if I were to predict not based on sources, but just based on kind of looking at the Thorns outlook heading into next season, I would say yes. And I I think one thing there is that I don't see the Thorns at this point keeping Anna Cernogorcevic, and that's an international spot. I just don't see where she fits in, and, and that's taking up a valuable international spot. So... I mean, I said or this with Andresini. Yeah, yeah. I, I still feel that way with Andresini, but I said that last year, and I, I don't understand. We felt this way for a while. And so, yeah. yeah it has Appar- really nothing's happened. Apparently, I can't always read which internationals are going to be um, on their way out, but both those players are not players that are contributing, and it seems like it would be that's taking up valuable spots that they could use elsewhere to bring in a more impactful player. So I would think that you'll see maybe one of those two players move, if not both, in the offseason, and that would free up the room for the Thorns to make a big international signing because they have clearly at least been in talks with players they're interested in. Yeah, I I would be, I think, a little surprised if they don't 
make a big signing. I mean, there is the Olympics next year, but let's be honest, the Olympics just are not as important as the World Cup. I don't think anyone views it as being on the same level. Also, the Olympics is much smaller. There's only, is it 12 teams? It's definitely a way smaller tournament than the World Cup, so there's going to be fewer players there. So I think, you know, in a World Cup year, I do think it's hard to bring in one of those big international signings because they want to be close to the national team. They want to be available ahead of the World Cup and on their uh, national team coaches radar. So it's better to be in your home country in a World Cup year. But now that we're beyond that, I think that players are going to be more willing to move. So we could see, you know, a player from Europe wouldn't really risk anything by coming to the NWSL. I think it would be the time to do it. So, uh, and I, I know the Thorns are an ambitious club. They want to be the flagship club of the NWSL and make those sorts of big signings. So I would be a little surprised if we don't see a big signing headed into next year, but it's so far in advance of that, that I would be surprised if like anyone specific is on the radar yet. All right, let's hit predictions. Um, Continuing on with Thorns, uh, Thorns at Utah. That's the first game of the weekend. What do you think, Caitlin? So I'm going to be less ambitious on my side bets because uh, <laughs> it hasn't really worked out that much. So I'm going to say a 2-0 win. Ooh, I'm really being optimistic. I don't know if I feel good about that. But I'm going to say the Thorns win 2-0. to zero, And I'm going to say Emily Sonnet gets a goal, a nice uh, defender goal. She does, she does do those every so often, so yeah. um, we will see. I am going to go with a 2-1 win. I also think the Thorns can find a way to get the job done in Utah. But I think it's going to be a little bit of a tighter game, and I'm going to say that A.D. Franch, who had a big game in Utah last time, is going to save a penalty kick. Okay. All right. Timbers versus Kansas City. What do you think? Again, I'm going to ratchet down the difficulty. So I'm going to say a 1-0 win. Despite everything we talked about, I'm just going to choose to be optimistic because I've been a little pessimistic in the past. So I'm saying a 1-0 win, and Jeremy Obobese scores the goal. All right, I'm going to be uh, pessimistic. <laughs> so Someone's got to um, do it. <laughs> someone has to do it. I'm going to say a 1-1 draw, so it's not a loss, but I'm going to say a 1-1 draw, which would not be a great result at all. And I'm going to say that Steve Clark is going to have a big game. Um, he's going to make more than eight saves. Hmm. All right. I could see it. Yeah. <laughs> we will see. We'll see if our predictions are at all correct this week. Um, let's talk about the fantasy update before we go. It uh, looks like there's some teams definitely separating themselves. I've seen the same names uh, week in, week out here. But in our head-to-head league, third place, we have the Perpendiculars. That's Roy. Second place, we have Sloppy, Sloppy, Sloppy. That's Steve. And Mark uh, is in first place still. That's Flicking Portland PTSC. In our open league, in third place, we have Manischewitz United, that's David. Second place, Gem City SC, that's Ryan. And Portland Tobin FC, that's B, is still on top. Uh, the shirtless Valeries. The shirtless Valeries. I know. So <laughs> we'll see. We'll see if shirtless Valeries can get back into the top. Come three. on, Clay. Get it together. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a. <laughs> that name definitely is winning on the. the <laughs> Team it was just so contest. random. Yeah, yeah it was I so it. random. All right. 
Uh, that's all we have for you today. We are Soccer Made in Portland. You can find us every week on Oregon Live and Stumptown Footy. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. And until next week, take care.